Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais in Ontario, Canada, with another episode of The Yacking Show. This is a show that brings you actionable business tips and ideas to improve your business. We do that by bringing you interesting guests. Today, certainly no exception. But first, let's introduce co-host Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much. And thank you also very much for tuning in. Today, we do have a very special guest with us. His name is DC Poulter. And DC founded. Hello, DC. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Kathleen and Peter. Thanks for having me on today. DC, DC has founded two successful startups. He's an experienced B2B startup leader and marketing specialist focused on clean tech and sustainability. And today, he will be yakking with us about starting a business and pitching it to investors. So again, once again, welcome, DC. And for our audience, can you give us a little bit about your background? And of course, tell us about your personal experience uh, building two successful startup companies. Right. Sounds great. So anyone who looks at my LinkedIn profile gets very confused. <laughs> uh, it's been a journey. And it's been a long journey. I've done a few different things over uh, over that journey. Um, but I started off as an energy engineer because I wanted to get involved in climate tech and solving energy problems. Um, and I ended up working in, well, nobody cared about that in the 80s. So the jobs were in the defense industry, um, designing missiles, which uh, was kind of the opposite of what I, you know, instead of helping humanity, I was blowing it up. So <laughs> didn't enjoy that too much. Um, ended up moving to Japan and working on uh, pollution reduction in steel production. And so that was interesting. Did that for a few years uh, and then said, well, enough of the engineering. Uh, I like engineering. I like science, but I don't want to be doing it all day long. Uh, so I said, yeah, what I want to do is is be on the business side of technology. So I went back, got my MBA. It was the mid 90s and still there were no jobs in climate tech. Um, and I ended up um, work, uh, joining a startup in uh, IT. I mean, this was the dot-com bubble. Everyone was mm -hmm, in computers mm -hmm. and networking and, and building websites and all that stuff. And that's where all the jobs were. And uh, and I joined a startup. And I didn't intend to join a startup. That wasn't my goal in life. But I joined a startup and it was like, wow, this is where I belong. This is what I enjoy. This makes sense to me. I never want to work in another big company again. So I joined the startup, um, ended up kind of restructuring the startup. Um, and it took a while, but we ended up with a great product and uh, ended up getting acquired by one of our um, partners that got acquired by another company and got acquired by another company that is now part of Broadcom. And this is the way Silicon Valley works. Um, and another way that Silicon Valley works is when one company gets acquired, the people who, who you know don't want to work at the big company end up leaving and starting new startups. So that's what I did. Mm -hmm create another startup in the same space, IT oh. uh, test equipment. Um, did that for about 10 years, was was successful in building that into a, uh, a good profitable business. Um, got to a point in my life where um, I said, you know, that's, I really want to be back in, in working on uh, climate uh, solutions. So sold that business and started uh, looking for opportunities in climate, but you know, now I'm kind of an older guy and uh, there was a, I tried a couple of startups, didn't really work out, ended up that where I found that I could actually help people a lot more, wasn't building the startup myself, but was investing in 
startups uh, that were already, uh, you know, they already had founders that were already uh, going out to market uh, and then being mentors to them to really kind of help them go from product idea to business to a good investment. So um, I've made a transition from being the guy who ran the business to the person who is investing in, I've invested in something like 100 uh, startups at this point, um, and then being a mentor to the startups. But what I see is, especially when we work with very, very early stage startups and entrepreneurs, many of them are very young. They have the same mistakes. They have the same misunderstandings. They kind of, especially in the same space, they have a lot of the same issues. And so instead of just working on a one-on-one, I started writing down uh, kind of what I was seeing, what people needed to know and put together. Uh, I do a like a weekly column that I put up. Uh, and now it gets something like uh, some of my articles got up to like 20,000 reads. So um, I wow. found that, yeah, um, it wasn't what I put it up just so that the people who were asking me questions, I could instead of like trying to think of my feet, I could actually say, here, I've written down the answers for you in kind of a little bit more detail. Um, here you can go read the, read the details and start putting together the whole series. And it really took off. And so um, I'm, I, I now have a lot of readers for these articles. And writing has always been something I've been interested in. So that kind of led me into, well, maybe hopefully I have a chance to talk about this later, but a novel about startups as well. So um, doing a little bit of everything right now, but staying kind of like, how do we build startups? How do we make startups? How do we make them successful? Mm-hmm. Wow. Very in- that mm-hmm. is an interesting journey. It's been a journey. Certainly. It's been a journey. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Good stuff. So here's one for you. In the current climate, is it, this is a two-part question, but it's it, the two parts are attached for a reason. In the current climate, is it becoming a lot more difficult for startups to attract investment and finance their startups, point one? Mm-hmm. And now on the other side of that coin, as an investor and an angel investor and, and a, someone who puts investment packages together, what is the most important factor you look for when you start advising people to invest or you, you invest yourself in a startup? Yeah, so those are both really great questions and one that investors have been asking uh, themselves. So mm-hmm. pretty much any investor group meeting you go to, everyone is like, well, what are you seeing right now? Because um, we read the news. We, you know, we see the Silicon Valley Bank explosion. We we hear what's happening in, in the stock market. But it's hard to tell what's going on in our space, which is very, very early stage. So um, mm-hmm. we all talk to each other, try to try to piece together the information. Certainly. The later stage startups are looking to go public. They need more. They can't go public now because the stock market has gone down. They need more money. The people who are writing checks for $100 million are being more discerning. So some mm-hmm. of them are not going to succeed. Some of them are, are kind of like doing layoffs. But how does that affect the, you know, the, the entrepreneur who's trying to raise a million dollars and he's got a team of like three or four people? Mm-hmm. That's hard to tell. Um, this answer is going to be a little bit long, but let me give you some sure. uh, some anecdotal information from my network. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm in an investment group called Tech Coast Angels, and it's a um, our chapter has about 150 members. We invest individually, but we also have our own member fund. We started the member fund mm-hmm. three years ago. We raised a million dollars among the members. We did, it was designed to be an annual fund. We did 10 
I, I'm going to make it simpler. This is not exactly accurate, but mm -hmm. um, just to simplify things, we did 10 investments over the course of a year of $100,000 each, used up the $100,000. And then uh, 2021, we created the second fund. Mm -hmm. The second fund was $2 million. Um, and over the course of a year, we did 10 investments in, in, well, invested in 10 companies. Most of them were at 200K. Suddenly, everyone was piling into angel investing. There's all this money coming in. All, everybody wanted to invest in startups. It, it went a little bit crazy. So our, uh, our last year's fund, 2022, we had $3 million um, to invest in 10 companies at $300,000 each. Um, but during the course of the year, the investment climate dropped off. Mm -hmm. Not all the founders got the memo. And so before we were, you know, the, the valuations were a little bit high. The traction wasn't there, but you know, that was, that was the terms of the deal. So we would invest. And um, over the course of last year, we got more discerning. We're like, okay, mm -hmm. that's an interesting startup, but your valuation's too high. And the founder's like, no, 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 I'm not lowering my valuation. We're like, well, we're not investing. Um, so we are still on our 2022 fund. We're now coming up on the end of April. I think there's room for one investment left, and then we'll open up right. our 2023 fund. Mm -hmm. So if you want to compare us to last year, you could say um, the number of investments we've done is down by about a third, I guess mm -hmm. uh, is probably a way of looking at it. But we also had $3 million to invest instead of $2 million. So right. it's roughly a wash in terms of how much we invested. If you compare it to pre-pandemic, we're still much, uh, much higher. And I mm -hmm. think that is about right. That fits into what I've heard other places that valuations are going back to where they were um, pre-pandemic, which already a lot higher than when I started 10 years before that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The amount of money out there is still fairly large, but it's down by about a third from last year. So you could say it's down by a third or you could say it's up like 50 percent over the year before. The year before uh, and I think that's about right. Okay. Okay. So I, I got to ask your, you. Sorry. Yeah, the second part of the question, which yeah. is, I can give a shorter answer for that. What are the hot right. spaces right now? Climate tech. If you are in climate tech, there's a bubble. Um, okay. You just put on, on your first slide, this is how much carbon dioxide are we're going to save, and people are throwing money at you. Um, valuations mm -hmm. are high. Um, there's a lot of funds that have just been put together to invest in climate tech, and they need to invest. Um, Everyone understands it's a very early stage, so they're not requiring the sort of um, traction that a non-climate tech would. So climate tech is hot. And the other one that's just been hot for 10 years is life sciences, uh, pharmaceuticals, okay. med tech, um, which is kind of a whole different world. You don't actually, everything else um, in the world I know you need, you know, when you're, when you're doing a business plan, when you're doing a pitch deck, you need to show how you're going to get from uh, your idea to a product, to a successful business, to a, you know, to $100 million in revenue, to your billion-dollar exit. Life sciences, you can, like, all you need to do is get, is show that we're going to get FDA approval, and then Pfizer or Merck or somebody else or, or Cardinal Health or Med, Medtronic is going to buy it out for a billion dollars. Okay. All you need, okay. so okay. It's, it's just strictly about the science. 
Because once the product is proven, you will get bought out. You don't need you'll to get build the business. You don't need to have, you'll never have any revenues. So it's, it's a bit of a different pitch, but it's also a different world. I can't, I can't look at it and, and I can, I can look at a pitch and say, that sounds like a great idea, but I have no way to assess it. Right, right, right. I got to ask you a quick follow-up now, having given us that background. Over the 10 years you've been doing this, and particularly over the last three, when you've been putting a fund together with other people, has, has your success rate improved dramatically? stayed the same? In other hard words, to tell. really hard, hard to tell, to tell okay. because you, you don't find out if you're successful for about 10 years. Okay, okay. That's kind okay. of the challenge of early-stage investing is right. um, you put money in, and you get nothing out. It's not like investing in regular stocks or real sure. estate or even racehorses. Right. No dividends, no interest. No, you can't take your money out until the company is acquired, does an IPO. And right. that is long in the future. Um, so there's something called the J curve, which is mm -hmm. it's because your portfolio goes like this. Yep. You start with, say, a uh, million dollars in your portfolio. You invest it all over two to three years. You're down to zero. Your failures come quick. Yes. The ones that don't work, they die and you get really depressed. You're like, I just lost a million dollars. Um, and then, hope, you know, the ones that do succeed, they take longer. And the yes. small successes come next. And then the big successes take 10 years. So you never know until you're 10 to 12 years out whether you've been successful or not. Right. But if you can stay in the 10 to 12 years and your successes are bringing home the bacon now, yeah. um, then you start seeing that curve go the other way, right? Well, that's the idea. Somewhere around yeah, the five sure. and six year mark, you should uh, pass your yeah. break even and then it should skyrocket when you get the uh, the really big exits. And one thing um, anyone in early stage investing will tell you is um, – your entire portfolio of 10 to 20 companies, your success will be determined by one of them. So about half of them will die completely. Mm -hmm. The other um, 40% will return 1x, maybe 2x. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, of your, of 90% of your portfolio, you break even. Right. And then you end up with one company that has 100 times return and kind of makes up for everything okay. and you never know okay. when that's going to come and which one is going to be. So you, you really don't know until, you know, until 10 years, sure. Um, sure. whether that's going to be a 10 X return or a hundred X return or, or what. So that's a pretty big gamble exciting. as an investor. <laughs> exciting. What's that? If that's a pretty big gamble as an investor, isn't it? Yes. Oh, it's huge. So do not, if you're thinking of becoming an angel investor, angel investor, my, Advice is do not put more money in than you can afford to lose. Or to lose, um, right. for sure. You're not going to get it back for 10 years. So you just yeah. have to like write it off and say it's not there. And then when it comes in, it's great. Um, so yes, for your your retirement fund, stick with bonds, with, uh, with, with Netflix stock, with S&P uh, index funds. And then this is right. <laughs> in a way almost like building another business and it might be successful. Hopefully it'll be successful, but no guarantees and nothing you can do uh, about it until 10 years from now. Right. So uh, this is something I wanted to ask you, DC, because on your website, you have a blog post that's entitled what, why startups should have a, both a builder and a visionary. And I, I'd yes. like for you to explain that, please. 
Okay. So I get a lot of people pitching me and, and I've been through this myself as, as, as a founder. Um, you tend to get two types. You get the visionary who's got wonderful ideas, sees the future, knows everything, but just can't focus on the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. Um, and ideas are wonderful, but they are worth nothing. And then you get the guys who's a lot more like me. Um, you know, we call them the plumbers and the architects, right? So the, the visionary and the, um, and, and I forgot what term I use, but the builders, um, who's really good with the day-to-day but not coming up with brilliant ideas. And what you need is the, the companies that are really successful tend to be uh, two founders, where one of them is the vision person who can go out, can tell a story, can talk to investors, can talk to customers, can sell everything, can come up with the new ideas. But then you also need the founder who can put those ideas into practice and deal with the day-to-day and the accounting and and keeping the company running and get the product working and dealing with customer support and all those things that actually really, really, really matter that, you know, that that the visionaries don't think about. So um, I always look for both the the CEO and the president or, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever roles they want to take, but having both somebody who's an ideas person and a details person. Mm. okay makes sense yeah yeah so um let's talk about your book you okay do you see you hey. you've written a book yes, which is, is called to kill a unicorn everywhere there you <laughs> go kill a unicorn that's right so tell our audience two things the background how you came to write it um and how you actually did write it because that's a whole story on its own and what's in the book Okay, so I'll start with what's in the book. It is a story mm-hmm. about startup. It's a story about a Silicon Valley startup that has some incredible technology that's going to revolutionize um, our entire transportation industry. No more cars, no more highways, no more airplanes. They have a solution for all of this instant transportation. It is great. Comes out of um, some PhD research at a at a university, major university in Silicon Valley, but. Right now, the, the chief scientist is missing. That's kind of the, the beginning of the story. And his friend, who's a hacker, has to try to find him. Um, and what he starts to realize is there's two possibilities here. One is it's either a total scam, like mm-hmm. Theranos. Actually, mm-hmm. Theranos didn't start as a scam. It just turned into one, uh, which this one may have as well, that they're just collecting money um and it kind of looks like it might be a real estate scam that they're taking the money and investing mm-hmm. in real estate and then the founder's just going to use that for her personal uh wealth and and kind of ripping off investors to make herself rich that's one possibility the other possibility is something really sinister is going on here and the the uh the company's very mysterious about everything going on inside the company so the hacker has to try to figure out uh, what is going on? Um, and I think to me, the most interesting part about it is so it's written from the hacker's point of view. He's a Japanese American. Mm-hmm. He has a lot of his own um, personal challenges with um, he, he's young. He's a little bit of an alcoholic. He had problems with his parents. Um, but he's a good person. He wants to try to find his friend. Um, but he is your very typical engineer, programmer, hacker type. He's very comfortable in front of the computer. Um, he's not good at dealing with everything outside of, outside of the computer. Um, and 
to try to solve this mystery, he realizes he, he just hacking alone doesn't only gets him so far. And he has to go out and start actually talking to people. Um, and that's outside his comfort zone. So that's really the story mm -hmm. of how he goes about finding out what's happening in, in, in uh, inside this mysterious startup called super duper that's already raised a billion dollars in venture capital from, uh, from, uh, wow. The Bitcoin billionaires who are financing it and, and the VCs. So it's it's a bit of a farce about Silicon Valley. Um, it's got a little bit of science fiction in there. It's structured as, as a noir mystery, and it's even got a little bit of manga. So it's a big mashup of everything. I, I, I try to make it as fun as possible. I tell people this is the most fun you will ever have reading about a Silicon Valley startup. A whole lot more fun than the lean startup and accounting books. And you can... Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's designed to be a bit of a farce about all the just insanity of Silicon Valley, um, and a good portion of it is based on on Theranos, if you know what happened there, mm -hmm. um, because that was just I, I had already started writing it and was trying to figure out well how would she actually get away with this, and then and then Theranos broke. It's like that's how she did it, and that became the model right. for how the how the how they get from yeah ripping off a few investors to turning it into a billion dollar scam. Oh, I like this. I like this novel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah. definitely gonna have to read. You're gonna have to yeah. read this one. That's for sure. So, um, did you set out? Did you want to be an author, or did you think, well, I've got all these stories and experience I've accumulated over many years. Why don't I put it into a book? Uh, how did you go about getting it from an idea into a book form? So, I've always enjoyed writing. I, I'm. Uh... I love reading, and um, back in my you know high school, college days, I had to make a choice: did I want to be a writer, or did I want to be a, a an engineer? And engineer. Right. Pretty much everybody told me, you know, stick with the day job, do the engineering, do the writing for fun, um, and that's what I I did. But I always missed the writing, so I've always written short stories. Mm -hmm. I've I've uh, been involved in a lot of book groups. Um, but never had the time to write a novel. So when I sold my last business, I, I suddenly had more time. It's like, okay, mm -hmm. what am I going to do now? Um, yeah, I'm either going to start another, uh, found another startup or, uh, you know, along with angel investing and, uh, and mentoring, I, I needed a little bit of a break. So I started uh, writing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, and I've always, and so, I mean, that was the other aspect of, um, in my working life, I found myself being uh, drawn towards the marketing side of technology. So, um, which was really about understanding your audience, trying to write something that you know the audience understands. What you know, what you know, that audience may be a technical audience, getting them to understand the product you're making, but also understanding what the what the customers are telling the engineers. So, um, there was always a lot of writing and translating uh, involved. So. I said, okay, now, uh, now I actually, you know, want to write a uh, a novel about life in Silicon Valley. So I, I started on that. It took me five years okay. because. Uh, so anyone who's thinking about writing something, this is obvious. If you want to write a mystery, you write it from the end and you put together an outline and you make it like a puzzle. I don't write that way. I can't write that way. So I wrote it from the beginning. I created the characters. I set them in motion, and I ended up with a story that didn't work. Was, you know, great characters, interesting situation, but it just <laughs> didn't work. So threw it away and started over again, uh, version two. 
um, spent like half a year on that. And yeah, I got further, but I still hit a dead end. Didn't work, threw it away, um, <laughs> started over again. Fourth version, the pieces came together and actually okay. like stopped after version three. I studied some movies, I studied Chinatown, I looked at the plot structure, I said, okay, now I'm gonna try again. Um, and that one actually, all the pieces, I had so many different pieces I could I could put together that actually sure. uh, fit together uh, very well. Uh, and then another like year of editing afterwards. So, um, you know, writing, <laughs> writing a novel, right is uh it takes longer than building a startup and and you get paid a whole lot a whole lot worse for it so <laughs> so just just getting back to startups um dc can you explain for the benefit of our audience that are may not be aware can you explain what a startup accelerator is and why an entrepreneur might want to join one sure um so kind of the big names in accelerators I and mean, Y Combinator, everybody knows Y Combinator as yep. kind of the, the granddaddy of the accelerators. And they're, they, they get like every cohort, which is twice a year, they have 300 companies that come in, they go through their education program with the idea of um, putting together their, their business plan and their pitch deck and, um, and their outreach to investors so that they are ready to build the business and get investment. There are a lot of accelerators that start at an earlier stage, like I um, am a mentor at UCLA and USC universities where these are typically college students or, or grad students who have a good idea, but they don't know how to put together the business. So um, there it's even earlier stage of, okay, well, what does the business need to be? What type of business are you? What does the market look like? What is the business model canvas? Becomes very educational uh, in entrepreneurship, working with people who've done it before. And then there are some very specialized um accelerators that are you know for example Techstars in la has an accelerator just just for um life sciences health tech uh startups that they do in collaboration with caesar sinai hospital and so they're very specialized they uh they have mentors who are doctors hospital administrators medical people um and then they bring in the investors and the mentors who know that space very well so there's kind of a range but the idea is either from very early stage up to what, what we call series a where you're already selling a product and have significant revenues this is giving you assistance in uh, putting together the business, putting together the pitch, putting together the pitch deck, um, meeting, talking to investors uh, and how to, how to find investors and how to talk to them. So uh, they're very useful if you need it. Mm -hmm. They're also very, most of them are very expensive. Some of them like the universities, mm -hmm. they, they don't charge for it or you know they may just be for the students. Uh, the ones like Y Combinator, um, they give you money, so that's a, a good way to get investment, but they also take a large chunk of your equity. So mm -hmm. um, it can be very, very expensive. But mm -hmm. so I always tell people there's some that are really useful. The ones that are specialized in your field, they're going to give you connections to people, uh, customers, investors that you need. Those are great. Um, ones that don't charge anything sure why not they they can give you some assistance and um, they can be great but then there's also now there's a whole world of accelerators that are, are are promising a lot but don't deliver very much so you really need to think through as an entrepreneur whether what you're going to get out of it is worth what you're going to pay for it pay for it sure 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 so 
I, I got to ask you a question about clean tech that I've been, it's mm-hmm. been bubbling around the back of my mind ever since we've been talking. Well, for a long time, and you're the first guy that I think is qualified to give you an answer on this one. So, <laughs> electric cars, electric vehicles are all the buzz, right? And, and yes. I see significant disadvantages because of the effect on the environment of mining cobalt and uh, lithium yep. in places like Democratic yep. Republic of Congo. And Absolutely. how do you dispose of those batteries? And to my practical mind, it doesn't make sense to cut around several hundred pounds or kilos of dead weight in the form of batteries. So we've had technology to transfer electricity from overhead wires or even perhaps rails to vehicles for 100 years. Why are we not seeing any developments on running cars without batteries or with very small batteries just when they get off the main grid? sucking their power either out of the road or out of something else, because we, we have the technology to do that, surely. That's a really good question. And uh, I think that's more of a policy question than it is a, uh, a technology question, because you're right. Okay. The technology okay. could be done either way. We've started to see things like uh, buses uh, at the bus stops having uh, wireless charging. So as they pull up ah. to the uh, bus stops, and they sit there yeah. for a minute, then they can charge the battery, and that way they can have a much smaller battery. Right. Um, we also see things like um, uh, fuel cells was was going to be mm-hmm. the savior instead of electric yeah. uh, electric uh, lithium ion batteries. But what we have right now are lithium ion batteries, and it works. And Tesla has proven the business model, and everyone's sure. kind of piled in that. If we wanted to have underground or overhead um, elect, uh, you know. Uh, electrical charging that way that would take a government investing trillions of dollars that yeah. the government hasn't uh at least certainly the u.s government is not up for um and so it's much easier to promote what's there which are sure uh, uh electric vehicles i agree with you completely this is a nathalie in the clean tech space but um whether electric vehicles are actually environmentally friendly or not it depends on the details it depends oh, on where your electricity is coming from. It depends yep, on how much, you know. So Tesla is still a big, heavy car carrying around way too many batteries. I would be... A, so this is the thing that kills me is... Um, I don't know about the rest of the world, but Americans have uh, range anxiety, right? They feel like they have to have 300, 400 miles of capacity in their vehicle and then they have to be able to charge wherever they go and you know maybe twice a year i drive somewhere that's more than 400 miles away most of the time i'm driving around the neighborhood um especially here where we have two cars anyway why not have Mm -hmm. one car that has a 100 mile range and then have a very fuel efficient um like um hybrid that can go anywhere that would give you the 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 longer range mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but that's just not the way americans think so <laughs> um it is kind of frustrating um and sure. yeah the uh the i have a tesla so i'm more green than you crowd out there i'm probably making a lot of enemies <laughs> right now but uh they do drive me crazy <laughs> oh me too me too yeah. Sorry, Kathleen, back to you. Uh, Peter, we're running a little uh, short on time, so I know you have a burning question you'd like to ask DC, though, so why don't you go for it? 
Okay. So, DC, here's my burning question, that I, and, and you're the best guy to ask this question. We ask it of all our successful guests. It's something that over my long lifetime has puzzled me immensely. The question is, in, in your experience dealing with all the people successful mainly, but some obviously unsuccessful you've come across, is there one characteristic or mindset or even a habit that differentiates those who become successful from those who remain average or fail? And I don't just mean accumulating wealth. I mean having a good life in addition to having a good income. Is there one thing or is it more complicated? Wow, what a question. Um, I don't have a good answer. Uh, I think it is complicated. I don't think there is one thing. Um, I think your question actually has two pieces of, you know, what makes a successful entrepreneur versus what actually makes a successful person. Sure. And they are often very different things. A yes. lot of the successful entrepreneurs are, um, I won't use expletives here, but you can imagine what uh, what, I, what I would say. And right. that's one of the reasons they're successful because, you know, running a, a startup is not an easy job and it, it's a lot of cat herding. And uh, it, it does sometimes take a personality that means not always being nice. But, you know, when I think about the companies that I, you know, the founders I've met that have been successful and the ones that haven't been successful, certainly having experience and having emotional, uh, I'll leave out the emotional IQ because some of them have been real, uh, real expletives. Um, I'd say the one thing for a startup founder that makes the most difference is um, being, enjoying doing everything. And that's kind of the difference okay. of a startup founder from even somebody who joins a startup after they're at 20 people yeah. or, you know, a big company, um, you have, as a founder, you have to do everything you have to, if you're, if you're a leader of a big company, you're a manager. That's all you're doing mm -hmm. all day is managing people. They're the ones with, but a startup, you have to build the product. You have to do support for the product, you, but you also have to think of the product. Um, and you have to sell the product. So you have to do sales, mm -hmm. you have to do marketing, you have to do product design, you have to do customer support, you have to pay the bills, you have to do the accounting, you have to make the coffee. You get to do everything from the littlest things to the biggest things. Mm -hmm. And that is a different mindset from people who've worked in kind of a corporate job where you get very specialized and very yep. good at one specific thing. So you really have to enjoy being doing everything and doing everything all day. Um, and nothing is too small, um, but also like not letting the details tie you down. Right. When it comes sure. to actually being a successful person, uh, that is a bigger conversation that, um, you know, has nothing to do with money. Um, for me, it's, it's just about, you know, um, being satisfied with life, being satisfied with your partner, um, finding the good in things, um, and you know money helps but it's uh it it not having enough is a problem having having too much doesn't uh you know you reach a saturation level pretty low where then it's just a matter of you know are you going to enjoy life or 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 you or not right mm -hmm. no thank you very good very yes. good answer so dc how do people contact you uh well Probably the best thing is um, if you're on LinkedIn and pretty much everyone I know is on LinkedIn, mm -hmm. follow me there um, as DC-Palter uh, on, uh, on LinkedIn. 
Um, and you can reach out to me there with messaging. And that's usually the, the better than uh, than emails or other ways. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well. Um, a little bit less so. It's not as as good a forum for, for business people. Um, and uh, then I have my, I have two websites just to confuse people. I have my Pitching Angels. So it's pitchingangels.com. That's where I have all of my um, uh, materials, my, my uh, startup articles, uh, my advice about what your pitch deck should look like. That's all up on pitchingangels.com. And then there's a, a feedback page there where you can contact me. And then for the book, I have dcpalter.com where you can read about the book. And then it also has a, has a contact form on there. So um, lots of ways to get hold of me. Okay. Thank you. That's all there. And for our audio listeners, all that information will be in the description for you to pick up. And just to confirm, people can order your book direct from your DC Polter website? Uh, That would just have a link to Amazon. So the best thing to do is go to Amazon and uh, look up To Kill a Unicorn, DC Polter. And you can be, uh, that works in Canada, works in Germany, works in Japan, Australia. So um, that's the best way to, to, uh, to buy the book. Great. Thank you very much for that. Absolutely. And back back to Kathleen to round it off. Right. Thank you so much, uh, DC. It was a pleasure having you on the show today. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If anyone is interested in being a guest on our show, all you need to do is please go to the yackingshow.com where you will find uh, the contacts tab. All you need to do is click on that where you will find a short application form. And we would love to hear from you. And please, if you have any topics you'd like us to cover, let us know. We have access to so many experts on this show. Until next time, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.